is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Researchers have completed a study on multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, and the startling findings should serve as warning signs for parents. The state of California is set to lift all COVID restrictions, most of them anyway. Health officials are pushing for mass vaccination before that happens, but questions remain whether the most populous state can return to normalcy safely. And uh, here's something to store away when COVID restrictions are dropped and everyone returns to the office. The CDC says we can all probably stop obsessively cleaning and sanitizing surfaces since COVID is airborne. The conventional wisdom was that suicide rates would soar during the pandemic in 2020, driven higher by anxieties and social isolation of lockdowns. But we are learning that, in fact, Uh, Suicides decreased last year. We'll look at the complicated factors behind that. Air travel picking up. So one airline is bracing for floods of air travelers by looking to hire thousands of new pilots. But uh, let's first start with multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. That's a rare, but it's a scary byproduct of COVID infections in kids that causes dangerous swelling of internal organs, especially the heart. The largest study to date of this syndrome has just been completed, and the results should act as a warning to parents and pediatricians for any children who catch COVID. Dr. Dean Bloomberg is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. So so this, uh, I mean, everything about COVID has been and is uh, troubling, but this sounds in some ways particularly troubling because, as I understand the study results, uh, we can have situations of children who, for all intents and purposes, were not ill, but then three or four weeks perhaps after being infected and asymptomatic with COVID become potentially seriously ill? Exactly. So this is a post-infectious syndrome where generally three to four weeks after having infection, the children become ill. And the first, the initial infection, they may have been symptomatic, they may have been swabbed and positive for COVID, or they may have been asymptomatic um, and then recovered on their own. Um, But then three to four weeks later, they can get scary sick. Is this a case of, you know, because it's it's affecting kids, is this a case of uh, something to do with the immune system? It's, you know, strong in kids, so the immune system overreacts to the coronavirus? Yeah, that's exactly what we think. We think this is related to the differences with the immune system, that children's immune systems are processing the infection differently. And we know that sometimes children have more exuberant responses to infections, and sometimes um, they might have more serious initial illness. And so for for COVID, we know that the more serious illness occurs in older uh, adults, but this tends to occur more in children. And I would just add that, you know, we have seen this in, in some young adults too, but it's much more common in the children. So I, one of the things I think, one of the takeaways from this is that pediatricians, doctors, need to be really on the lookout for this, right? When when a kid or a parent comes in with a kid and they have some unexplained issues and the parent says, oh, but my kid didn't have COVID, but that still doesn't mean there isn't suspicion, right? 
That's exactly right. That if a child, if we have suspicion for for this multi-system inflammatory syndrome, it doesn't matter if there's a clinical history of previous COVID infection. What we generally do is we do send a blood test to test an antibody response, and almost all the children will have positive antibody to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, indicating that they did have past infection. What's the possibility that this, uh, if the virus does uh, continue to mutate, which viruses do, that we might see this syndrome showing up in, uh, you say, already young adults? What if it starts showing up in older people as well? Yeah, it could. And the issue is it's really related to the number of infections that occur. So what we've seen after each of the surges, after each of the waves, it's predictable that three to four weeks later, we start seeing these kids come in with Miss C. So if there's more variants and a higher rate of infection, we'll we'll start seeing more of this. Now, uh, none of the available vaccines as yet uh, are available for children uh, under, I think it's 16, right? Is there an anticipation that once vaccines are hopefully available, perhaps by the, the fall, that this syndrome will, if not disappear, become sort of a relic of the past? Well, that's what we're hoping. We had some promising results uh, from last week from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that showed with over 2,000 study participants that were 12 to 15 years of age that there were no cases in the vaccine group and 18 cases in the placebo group. So we're, we're hoping that this is submitted soon to the FDA for emergency use authorization. We, we can decrease the age of vaccine administration and, and then studies are ongoing in even younger children. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Ready or not, California reopening is heading your way soon. Governor Gavin Newsom announcing that he plans to swing the doors wide open and drop almost all COVID restrictions and precautions by the 15th of June. He did acknowledge that any surge in COVID infections could change those plans. But is the Golden State really ready to return to normalcy within two months? Dr. Robert Wachter is chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. So here we have the governor saying today that come the 15th of June, unless there's some major change, pretty much uh, everything is back open for business. Uh, And I get it that the infection rate is, is way down in California. It's not in many other parts of the country, quite the opposite. Is this, from a medical point of view, a wise move? It's a reasonable move if we're in uh, in good shape, and we're in really good shape today. We're doing great. There's nothing that says that things are going to get worse, but uh, he did leave a couple of big ifs there. It has to be that the cases are remain down and the vaccines are out and that hospitalizations remain down. If that's true, then everything he said is true and great. Uh, but I was just talking to colleagues today in Michigan, and they really are seeing a disaster there. So we have to keep our fingers crossed and continue to behave well and get vaccinated. And then I think it's all fine, but it could go sour. Uh, what about the idea of keeping the mask mandate in place for now, though? Uh, how far much uh, much further down the road will we see masks coming off of our faces uh, if the uh, everything does reopen? Yeah, it's a tough question because we're we're not going to be at that magical point of herd immunity where the virus has just died out. So there's still going to be virus in our community and there's still going to be unvaccinated people. Uh, Some of them will be adults by that time, adults who've 
basically have chosen not to be vaccinated, uh, but also also kids. And, uh, you know, the, the data look pretty good about the vaccines in kids. I assume that we will have some vaccination for kids probably in the fall. But I think it's prudent that while there still are unvaccinated people around and there's still virus around, it's reasonable to continue to wear masks. But, you know, you mentioned Michigan uh, and and that brings this up, you know. I know California likes to sort of sometimes think of itself as as being an island unto itself, but we're not New Zealand. We're we're not even Australia. We really can't stop people from these other states like Michigan that have a high infection rate from coming here or people here going to those places and then coming back, which is why I still wonder whether or not it's a wise decision from a, a medical point of view even if our situation in California remains as it is today, say, in June, maybe even better, so long as we're surrounded by other states that have a much worse situation. Yeah, I think the assumption is going to be Michigan is going to be better in June, too. Uh, it, it looks like there may be some seasonality with this virus, that it it will go down because of warmer weather in places, both because of the dynamics of the virus and because people get outside in places like Michigan. I think it's a good bet that they and other places will get it under control by June. And June is not now. Two months from now, you know, the vast, vast majority of adults in the state of California will be vaccinated so that, yeah, there will be virus getting introduced into our environment. Uh, but as long as it's not the vaccine resistant viruses that really are the biggest worry, but have not played out in a major way in the U.S. so far, then, you know, if, if, if 75, 80 percent of the adults are fully vaccinated by then, the fact that every now and then, you know, the virus pops into our community, it won't have that many places to go. Some people will still get infected, but it shouldn't cause the kind of surge that we saw, for example, over the winter. By the way, just for a future reference, Dr. Heinz or Heinz ketchup for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I go for Heinz. Yeah, okay. Of course you do. Heinz, Heinz is a little sweet for me. I, think right. oh, what I, just, I just discovered that on the label, speaking of ketchup, on the label yeah. of SpaghettiOs, it says 20% of your daily vegetable requirement. Wow. It's actually on the label. I thought it was brilliant. Wow. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. Robert Wachter, the uh, chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. The CDC is advising all of us to back away from the disinfecting wipes and sprays, reaffirming that the novel coronavirus is transmitted almost exclusively through the air. The CDC says old-fashioned soap and water should work just fine to keep surfaces clean. Dr. Joseph Allen directs the Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. We thought the coronavirus could survive on surfaces, so why the change now? Yeah, so thanks for having me on. I'd say a couple of things have changed. I mean, early on, a year ago, I wrote a piece in response to people, um, you know, wiping down ketchup bottles. You're talking about ketchup and mustard, wiping down everything, being afraid to get mail or receive a package, and really uh, a misunderstanding of exposure and risk, largely driven by some of those early studies that showed, yes, you can detect the virus on surfaces, but that does not necessarily equate to risk. And we've learned a lot over the past year and that what we call fomite transmission, and fomite is just any inanimate object that can harbor a virus, uh, that fomite transmission is actually not really happening at all, uh, or very rarely. So it can happen, um, but it's rare. And I wrote an, an op-ed in the Washington Post with colleagues back in November, actually, um, pointing out something that most people find surprising, that we didn't have a, doc a single documented case of fomite transmission. This virus is definitely transmitted through the air, 
So it's great to see the new CDC guidance, which essentially recognizes all of this latest science. It says it can happen. In most situations, the risk from touching of surface is very low. Um, and most importantly, it's easy to break that transmission chain through good hand hygiene. So it was great to see this update. It was important, and it certainly follows the science. Now, is that largely because a viral load? In other words, if you do touch a surface that might have some surviving coronavirus on it, by the time it gets to your nose or eyes or mouth via your hands, you're probably not likely to have that much in terms of, of viral transmission to cause disease? Yeah, that's that's right. And for this virus in particular, right, you've seen the studies that can we can detect it on surfaces. But if you walk through that whole chain, and for example, you take the idea of a, you know, get receiving a package. Well, the the, the driver has to be infectious, uh, has to put a, a, a you know cough or sneeze right on the package. So put a large viral load right on the package, right? Then no time has to pass, right? Because time the virus starts and activates over time exponentially, logarithmically. Um, and then you would have to touch it. And when you touch it, there's still a loss in the transfer from the, you don't, not all of it comes off on your hand. Then no time would have to pass again because it'd be again inactivating on your hand before you touched your mouth or your nose or your eyes where you could transfer the virus. And again, there's another loss factor happening because not all of what was on your hand got transferred. So that's where we say it can certainly happen, but you can see the chain of events that would have to take place. If there's any time between when that driver even sneezed on a package. I don't even like to give that example. Um, and then before you touched it, or if you washed your hands in any intervening moment, that breaks the chain. Or if there's a time happening between you touching that spot, or if there wasn't a large viral load in the first place. And that same logic applies to doorknobs and schools and uh, you know books and everything else. Um, so a lot of things have to happen for fomite transmission to happen. And what's happened really is that that's distracted us from the main mode of transmission, which is through the air both at close distances and beyond six feet, we can have transmission. Uh, and that's really where our resources should be, is, should be spent. Dr. Joseph Allen directs Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. The thinking among mental health professionals was that a year of high anxieties from a global pandemic combined with persistent social isolation would result in a rise of suicides during 2020. The potential for a high suicide rate was even used as a criticism of lockdowns. So the expectation was that the rate of suicides would be going up. But that was not the reality. In fact, according to new statistics compiled by the CDC, suicides decreased in 2020 for the first time in several years, down almost 5%. Dr. Larry Wright directs the Forefront Suicide Prevention Center at the University of Washington. It's not just suicides that didn't go up, but there are different factors at play. What else is in the mix here? Yeah, well, first, let me begin by saying thank you for having me. And I'd say... You know, these figures are good news, and I, and I hope that they will hold up, but they should probably be interpreted cautiously at this point. Uh, one of the reasons is we're still learning about what actually happened. So we want to see these figures disaggregated. It's likely that across geography, across time, across a lot of different um, elements, we can break it down and get a better pattern of it. But, you know, going back to how this occurred, if you think about it, the predictions made sense, right, is that there are certain risk factors associated with deaths by suicide that we just assumed would be amplified. So depression, loneliness, uh, unemployment, sense of being a burden. Those were the things that we know are associated with um, suicide. And everything would suggest that the pandemic would have amplified those. And in fact, 
Um, with SARS uh, almost 20 years ago, we did see that. But there's a couple of reasons why we may not be seeing this. And um, I, I think they're actually cause for hope. Uh, when we think about death by suicide, there's a lot of different elements associated with it, but in a lot of ways it can be um, thought of as a sense of connectedness or a sense of belonging. And that connectedness or belonging can act as a bulwark against death by suicide. And so what we, may, we may have actually seen that that sense of belonging uh, increased, particularly in the early uh, parts of the pandemic, but there may be some other elements in there as well. Like I say, um, looking at how the data is broken down, uh, each state, uh, collects and reports data slightly differently. I don't think that that would probably make up for that 5% difference, but it could. The real element here is that um, while we look at death by suicide, there are other uh, categories, uh, substance abuse, um, you know, whether it's alcohol, opioids, whatever the case may be, where people um, also died. We're typically not sure if that was uh, a death by suicide or not. And so it's challenging to say exactly where we are. Uh, I would like to look at it as good news and hope for the best. Well, I, I mean, you know, you talked about being connected. Uh, and, and I guess at, at, at some level that does make sense because so many people were doing FaceTimes, you know, uh, videos with people that they may not have talked to for years, but all of a sudden everybody kind of felt like they were in the same boat. Do you think there was that that was part of it too, perhaps, that, that people who otherwise might have felt isolated, lonely, besides being connected to other people that they may not have talked to for a long time because of the pandemic, in, in a way they were kind of part of a, of a global phenomenon that gave them in a weird sort of way, a sense of belonging. I think that's right. And, and again, I mean, I think we'd have to wait to see um, if that pans out, but it, it is reasonable to assume that we, there was this deeper sense of we are all in this. And, you know, all of us saw the, the videos of in Italy, people singing and clapping drums at a certain time of night, you know, that, that means we are connected. And, and so I don't think we can discount that. And, and, you know, the other point you made is, um, 30 years ago, we would not have been connected in the same way, right? Um, technology has allowed us to connect in a meaningful way. And that could have something to do with it as well. You know, I, I think about my own son who here in Washington State, we've been out of school for quite some time. He's, his friends are always online and this just gave him more opportunity to be closer to his friends. Now, I don't mean to suggest that's the case with, with everybody, but I do think technology has changed how people communicate with one another and that may have helped. Yeah, so we were able to be lonely together. So you felt the loneliness and maybe to the point that uh, maybe the idea crossed your mind that you felt a little suicidal. But the fact is when you connect with people online who were feeling the same thing, everybody's backing up what you you feel. Doesn't that help cut down the rate of suicide? And if that's the case, don't we apply that to uh, stopping suicides when there's no pandemic? Well, that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, one, one of the things is... Um, as we are all connected, there is a difference between um, having thoughts of I may take my own life versus taking one's own life. You know, one of the things that I think is really important and, and uh, hope filled news is the idea that suicide is preventable. And the more there are those connections, the more opportunity um, there is for people to say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Approach that and, and take steps to um, prevent 
people from taking that next step of taking their lives. So um, yeah, I think that that definitely has part of uh, part of the uh, equation. All right. Thanks so much. Dr. Larry Wright directs the uh, Forefront Suicide Prevention Center at the University of Washington. When we come back, one airline is predicting a surge in air travel, so it's on a hiring spree. Plus, what is perhaps the most horrifying and important impact of the of the COVID pandemic, a national catch-up shortage. You're listening to Coronavirus Daily as we are drumming up the start of travel season again. A, key question facing the airline industry is not whether it will face a pilot shortage. So Chicago-based United Airlines is making a move to get ahead of the issue, and it has committed to train 5,000 pilots at its own academy over the next 10 years. WBBM's Cisco Cotto spoke with Joe Schweiderman, professor of public services and director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul University in Chicago. Give us some of the details here on what United is doing. It's really a remarkable move considering that, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, but they're really thinking ahead and they continue to struggle with lack of, you know, diversity and on the flight deck uh, pilots and flight engineers. Right now, only 6% are women, about 10% are black, Asian, Hispanic, and Latina. And uh, that's, uh, they can see not really going to uh, improve any time because going to flight school and getting the training to be a commercial pilot can cost up to $100,000. So they're bringing some of that training in-house and it's uh, going to be based out of Phoenix. And so when it comes to, I guess, creating a pipeline, is this the sort of thing where the makeup of United's pilots is going to change in a year or two, or are we looking maybe more like a decade down the road? Well, it's really a a long-term commitment here, and it will take people going through the school. They're going to start with just 100 pilots, uh, and it'll take about five years. But the notable thing is they're guaranteed a job, or effectively guaranteed job, getting out. And uh, some people may pay partial uh, uh, tuition. Others will go free. They're going to set aside well over a million dollars for scholarships, uh, tuition, you know, uh, cover the tuition. And that, I think, has been the real problem. You know, to become a pilot, you have to sort of uh, step out of the uh, paid workforce for quite some time. And that really is prevent diversity. So they're putting some money behind their actions here, and it's going to kick off real soon. Does United have the ability, uh, you know, based on different affiliates to get the training on different size planes, slowly but surely getting those hours before they work their way up to the big commercial airliners? Yeah, that's right. And they still use the uh, the system where you start with the smaller planes. You start as a flight engineer, uh, effectively uh, second to the captain, and uh, you work your way up. Uh, but I think what's uh, significant here is that United's planes, you know, are um, – Uh, unlike their partners, are pretty good-sized planes. So once you spend those five years, you start at a pretty uh, healthy salary. And it's uh, uh, we know with the pandemic, a lot of pilots are retiring a bit early. You know, there's a hard stop at 65 for pilots. There's virtually no chance that Congress is going to raise that age, what they've already raised once. So they're on a cliff here, and in two or three years, they're going to lose lots of their, (laughs) their veterans. Interesting to see what United's doing and what other airlines may do. Thank you. That's Joe Schwederman. He's Professor of Public Services, Director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul here in Chicago. Your favorite condiment may have fallen victim to the pandemic. We are running out of ketchup. With so many people turning to takeout meals during the pandemic, those tiny ketchup packets are in high demand and suppliers cannot seem to keep up with it. In fact, the Wall Street Journal says the price for package 
Ketchup has gone up 13%. Another reason for the high demand. Restaurants are trying to reduce ketchup sharing during the pandemic, so they are stocking up on those packets. While ketchup brands like Heinz are looking to increase production, many restaurants have to resort to generic ketchup brands for the time being. You can find this Odyssey original podcast and others on odyssey.com and Odyssey app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And be sure to hit the subscribe button.